Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Improving the appropriateness and quality of care while containing and hopefully reducing costs has forced the U.S. healthcare system to get creative with ways to do so. In recent years, accountable care organizations, also known as ACOs, have emerged as an effective way to do so, and the movement will likely continue to grow over the coming years. During this podcast, we'll be speaking with several experts about ACOs and how they can help both patients and cost savings. Later in the podcast, we'll also discuss other strategies being implemented to tackle both of these issues. First, we spoke with Rob Mechanic, a senior fellow at the Heller School of Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University and the executive director of the Institute for Accountable Care. Mechanic started by explaining the role ACOs can play in care for high-need, high-cost patients. First of all, the system is really failing high-need, high-cost patients. So these are people who have complex illness, they're frail. Um, they're socially isolated, they may have a lot of social factors that are uh, affecting their health and their, and their life, and they fall through the cracks of the traditional systems. Now the ACOs, you really need a system of care to do the best that you can for these patients. They're very expensive, they are not only high utilizers, but high utilizers of uh, care that is avoidable care, a lot of unnecessary care. And so um, the ACOs are a system of care, so they're well suited uh, to try and fill those gaps. The other issue is that a lot of the things that this population needs are not covered under traditional payment models or they're under reimbursed. So uh, home visits, physician visits at home, nurse visits at home that don't fit into the you know, typical Medicare home health care visit, other kinds of social supports, getting people appropriate food or helping them with housing. Uh, those are things that aren't paid for, but in a global budget model, as in an ACO, um, there's really more opportunity to be creative and do the right things for the patient, not just the things that Medicare will pay for. So I think ACOs are very well positioned to help this, this group, and that's, it's, um, it's a real need in our system. Mechanic also explained how ACOs compare with other payment models when it comes to both improving care and reducing costs. So uh, ACOs, first of all, just starting out with the Medicare program, if you look at all the different payment models in the Medicare program, the ACO program is by far the largest of any of them. You know, we have bundles and patient-centered medical home and other things. ACOs in the traditional Medicare program now cover about 30% of all of the beneficiaries that are eligible. So this is by far the scale, the, this is by far the, the largest uh, program. There's been a narrative and coming from the administration that ACOs haven't saved money. And that's just not true. So it turns out that the way the program is measured is there's a budget target called a benchmark and if ACOs uh, spending is below that benchmark, they get a shared savings payment. But the benchmarks, and it's you know well documented uh, in the research community, systematically underrepresent what the savings are. It's it's not the way. So when CMS does formal evaluations, they don't look at benchmarks. 
what they do is something, uh, is standard research method called a counterfactual, where you compare uh, change in spending for the patients who are attributed to the ACO to a matched cohort, geographically and clinically matched cohort. It's called a difference in differences model. So when you look at that, so uh, for example, according to the benchmark method, um, historically 2013 to 2015, uh, CMS measures uh, savings as $960 million. But with a differences and differences approach, and there's been a recent study by Harvard published in the New England Journal, uh, savings were 1.6 billion. And a study um, commissioned by NACOS found, uh, by Dobson Devonzo, found 1.8 billion in savings. When you look at the net savings to the government, so now you subtract out payments, uh, shared savings payments made to the ACOs. CMS would say in that period, it, ACOs cost the program $340 million. But the Harvard study would tell you that it, the program saved $360 million, and the Dobson Devonzo study says it actually saved about $550 million. So ACOs have saved money. Going forward, it's interesting because there has been uh, a rash of, of new evaluations released. And so if we run through the CMS contractor independent evaluations, pioneer ACOs save the program money. Next generation ACOs save the program money. Bundled payment for care improvement after four years, no savings with the exception of joint replacement bundles and congestive heart failure admission bundles. CPC Plus doesn't have an evaluation, but its predecessor, the Comprehensive Primary Care Program, saved money but not enough to offset the payments, extra payments that the Medicare program made. So the track record so far is ACOs look pretty good compared with the alternatives. As mentioned before, Mechanics serves as the Executive Director of the Institute for Accountable Care, which seeks to build an evidence base on the impact of accountable care delivery strategies. Mechanic offered more detail on the Institute and its purpose. The Institute for Accountable Care was started about a year ago. Um, it was originally founded by NACOS, but it's a separate organization. We're an independent 501c3 research institute. We have a separate board. Um, and our, our uh, mission is really to improve the evidence base for accountable care models, not just ACOs, but accountable care uh, writ large. Uh, one of the reasons I was excited to join the Institute is, first of all, uh, through NACOS, we have a massive Medicare claims database, which is a great research uh, database where we can ask a lot of questions. And we don't want to just ask the question, are ACOs saving money or not? We really want to understand which ACOs are successful, why are they successful, more specifically, what are they doing that is working and what are they doing that isn't working. So what we want to do is help document what really are the best practices in accountable care, both make that available to the broader community, to the policy community. But the other piece of what we're doing is working closely with ACOs to try to implement some of these models. So I'll just give an example. We, we have a grant um, from three foundations, the, the SCAN Foundation, the Commonwealth Fund, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And it is to establish a program, I'll call it a demonstration program, it's really an implementation program where we'll identify some specific initiatives to improve the care for high need, high
high-cost uh, individuals in ACOs. So we have an advisory group of ACOs. We've been working on developing both um, series of interventions and an implementation plan. Uh, we expect to, in early uh, 2019, go forward. Uh, one stream is looking at um, non-medical in-home visits, community health workers and paramedics that will help with um, try to close gaps on social determinants of care and to try to create a better connection between patients who may be uh, socially and physically isolated back to their healthcare teams. Um, the second model is more of a, I'll call it an extensivist program. I um, mean, there are a lot of flavors of these. People probably think of the care more model where you take uh, people with very complex medical conditions and you have a multidisciplinary team either in a separate clinic or a clinic inside a clinic, you identify really the most complicated, sickest patients, and you, you shower them with love and care. You go into their house, you have a dietitian, a pharmacist, nurse practitioners, uh, a physician, and you really try to manage the most serious patients over a period of time, get them stable, and eventually get them back to their primary care provider. It's a really promising model. Um, it's hard to do if you don't have some kind of a global budget model in place, because again, uh, some but not all the services are billable, uh, but we think this is really a direction the healthcare system needs to go in terms of caring for these really vulnerable people. And so uh, we're excited. Uh, we, we, we're gonna develop a lot of outside partnerships with the universities and uh, research institutes because we do have rich data and we do have great relationships with ACOs that are trying to do this work. So um, we're really excited about the future of the Institute and the kind of work we're going to do. In December, CMS finalized its overhaul of the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which was its ACO program. Following the overhaul, the program has been renamed to Pathways to Success. With the finalized rule, the traditional three tracks will be replaced with two new tracks called Basic and Enhanced. Under the basic track, ACOs will start in a one-sided model and incrementally phase in more risk. With this new program, ACOs will be pushed to assume risk more quickly. They'll be able to stay in one-sided risk for two years, which is down from the previous six. Existing ACOs will be able to stay in one-sided risk for one more year, and low-revenue ACOs will be able to stay for three years. Other components of the new program include a shared savings rate of 40%, which is down from 50%, and the allowance of incentive payments in the form of gift cards or vouchers to beneficiaries for taking steps to achieve good health. ACOs will be able to enter this new program as of July 1st. However, in addition to Medicare's ACO program, ACOs should also look to be involved in Medicare Advantage, according to Kim Kaufman, the Vice President of Value-Based Care at Summit Medical Group. According to Kaufman, Medicare Advantage has benefits that haven't been available by the Medicare Shared Savings Program and won't be available in the Pathways to Success program. She explains. I think that uh, Medicare Advantage has some levers to control the total cost of care that are just not available in the Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs. 
Uh, things like there's a contracted network of providers, there are levers that have to do with prior authorizations and or referring uh, referral patterns that are quite helpful in controlling the total cost of care. Contracted rates is huge. Um, total cost of care is a function of both utilization and contracted rates and so in MA you have more room. Um, the other thing piece I think particularly from a patient perspective is that Medicare Advantage has supplemental benefits that are available to the patients that are just not there in traditional Medicare. There are some other levers in Medicare Advantage that are not available in MSSP, and those would have to do with the top line, uh, risk adjustment, for example. There's no top end, there's no maximum risk adjustment in Medicare Advantage the way there is in Medicare Shared Savings Program. Uh, have, there are, however, two downward adjustments in risk adjustment uh, for Medicare Advantage because risk adjustment is outpacing. Um, risk adjustment and fee-for-service. Also in terms of cash flow, if a organization chooses to partner with a health plan, there's much less cash outlay than there is in a Medicare Shared Savings Program where the provider organization is doing it all on their own. Finally, in shared savings in a Medicare Advantage context, you are actually in a position where you can negotiate what is the threshold, what is the upside, what is the downside split, and certainly what comes down from the hill in Medicare Shared Savings Program, that, that is what it is. Um, final point I would make, though, is that while Medicare Advantage has some uh, opportunities to better control total cost of care, not all patients are going to want to be in a Medicare Advantage plan, and that's why I think it's important that provider organizations have a strategy that includes some, some element of Medicare Shared Savings Program and MA. Outside of CMS, ACOs have gained popularity among commercial payers. Scott Hewitt, the Vice President of Payment Strategy and Innovation at United Healthcare, offered insight into the success his company has seen with their Nexus ACO. The biggest success factor that we've seen with our Nexus product is the engagement and satisfaction of the members that have selected that product. Um, they really feel that their providers care about them. They're, they're seeing a more coordinated level of care and I think that's the biggest selling point for this product. Um, besides the price points uh, for the employer, it's the results that the members are seeing. Hewitt also discussed the growing interest in ACOs among commercial payers. From my perspective, the, the reason interest is growing in ACOs is because patients are looking for somebody to help coordinate their care. Um, I know as a personal example, my wife several years ago was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had to coordinate care or we had to coordinate the care between the 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 general surgeon who removed the the lump between the plastic surgeon between her oncologist it was us serving as that go-between for all these different providers making sure that tests were done making sure that results got from one physician to another whereas with an ACO if that ACO is truly performing at its optimal capabilities, they're gonna coordinate that care for the member. They're gonna make the member feel supported, um, which I think employers are looking for. When employers are trying to decide where do we want our members to get their care, where do we want our members to um, experience care, they're coming to payers like United Healthcare asking for products that offer just such an uh, experience. Moving on to other ways of controlling costs, Hewitt explained how the industry is moving toward implementing more bundled payments. 
United Healthcare, uh, like CMS, like other payers, are certainly moving down the direction of bundled payments. I think that there was, as an industry, sort of, there's always been interest in it. We've focused on some of the more uh, higher cost items like transplants. Transplants have been paid by bundled payments or via bundled payments for over 25 years. Uh, now looking at other modalities, can other modalities fit under a bundled payment arrangement? At United Healthcare, um, we are piloting several new initiatives, new modalities with bundled payments. We're working on some cardiac procedures, some ortho procedures, some GI procedures, maternity care, so more than just the delivery itself, you know, looking at a more global um, pregnancy and then some post-delivery time. Uh, and the early results in these are is is phenomenal in terms of cost savings. And, and it's the the reason for the savings is a better coordinated care. Um, if for example, if you're a surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, you're going to get picked the same today in a fee-for-service environment, whether you do something at a hospital inpatient, hospital outpatient, or a freestanding ambulatory surgery center. You're going to get the same reimbursement. Now, obviously, a hospital inpatient, uh, you know, doing a procedure in the hospital and they're being admitted is going to cost the payer a whole lot more. It's going to cost the member a whole lot more. Um, but if that surgeon can move the let's just say a, a knee replacement from the facility to a freestanding surgery center, there's a lot of dollar savings there. If we share those dollars with the surgeon, now, they're, now they've got a reason to move the appropriate cases into the appropriate setting. Taking it beyond just the location of that service, what are some follow-up visits? You know, like did a, the surgeon not necessarily care as much about rehab as, or skilled nursing um, but now that they have some more vested interests in it, they might ensure that the member's going to the best skilled nursing facility or getting to the top physical therapist in, in their region, um, leading to better experiences and better outcomes. Drawing on United Healthcare's experiences, Hewitt also discussed how value-based contracts have been improving. One of the things that we've been doing, and as I'm sure most payers are, is tracking what is our evolution in terms of movement to value-based contracting. In 2012, when United Healthcare first started tracking this information, we had roughly $12 billion in spend tied to value-based contracts. Now, five years later, six years later, we have almost $70 billion tied to value-based contracts. And not only do we have more dollars tied to value-based contracts, we're seeing the evolution move from a preponderance of performance-based contracts, so metric-specific programs, um, to more programs that are focused on bundled payments and population health. So I think that the community, the provider community, the entire healthcare landscape is changing to the point where we are seeing the benefits of these programs. Um, certainly, with the actions that CMS is taking, actions that United Healthcare is taking, actions that employers and states are asking of United Healthcare to, to undertake. This is the direction that people want to, to move, and it's the direction that people should be moving. I mean, there, there's no other industry where we um, simply increase reimbursement to somebody. You and I as employees don't just automatically get a, a rate increase or our salaries doesn't go up on an annual basis if we're not performing at a higher level, right, as an example. 
we need to bring in more components where we look at the, the cost and quality of, of healthcare and how is it being delivered? How is it being received by the members? Isn't it making a difference? So I understand the question in terms of providers saying, I've got all these different programs, all these different uh, metrics that I'm being asked to, to look at. Is it actually resulting in, in, in a benefit for the end consumer? And I would think that I, I know that the data at United Healthcare shows that it is. Finishing up our conversation, Hewitt ends it off with physician interest in participating in value-based contracts and skepticism surrounding them. A plethora of information or data points that we can look at, whether it's reduced inpatient days, reduced uh, ER use, um, increased PCP visits, lower specialty visits per thousand. Um, but it's more than just utilization metrics, it's also quality metrics. And when we look at our quality metrics, we're seeing our providers that are in a VBC arrangement, so value-based contracting arrangement, so it doesn't necessarily need to be on ACO, but that they're focused on and improving the care that members are receiving. So it might be lowering uh, C-section rates, it might be uh, focused on appropriate use of lab services. It might be prescription drug use or um, generic drug use, tier one drug use. There's lots of different measures that, that we look at at United Healthcare. And um, while not every provider is successful in these arrangements, if I look at my entire book of business, I'm seeing the, the shift um, in the right direction. To learn more about ACOs and other methods of controlling costs while improving care, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or by following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for joining us.